0: Welcome to the Scrum, the WGBH news political podcast. I'm Peter Kansas. In a flash, you'll be hearing a conversation orchestrated by Adam Riley with Globe columnist Joan Vanaki and myself. The focus is the New Hampshire primary. We basically ponder Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Donald Trump, Bill Weld, Deval Patrick, among other personalities. Adam, take it away.
1: Joan Furnacki, you've been writing about Elizabeth Warren's presidential bid for quite a while right now. I'd love at the outset to get you to reflect on the arc of her campaign and maybe what you make of her prospects with New Hampshire looming compared to what you thought of her chances to become the Democratic nominee three months ago or six months ago.
2: Well, if you look back to a year ago when she was just starting out in Iowa— um, it seemed like she got off to a really masterful start, um, better than a lot of people predicted, and began to weave this together this narrative of a woman from Oklahoma, not Massachusetts, who came from humble background and was on the side of working families and really kind of forged a connection with that story. And the arc continued to go up and up and up to the point that by the summer— people were basically saying, this is the nominee. I I think the conventional wisdom was starting to shift. Yes, Biden was the front runner, but that Warren had this all momentum going. Um, And then something happened. And most people tie the something to her putting up her hand and saying, yes, she's with Bernie on Medicare for all. And she kind of hit a wall. Um, There were other stumbles along the way. And suddenly, Bernie Sanders, who is for Medicare for All but has never been really pressed on the numbers, started rising and rising, and Elizabeth Warren started falling. That's not where she is right now, though. I think just to complete that the circle, once Bernie started rising, I think people started seeing Elizabeth Warren as the person who might be able to stop him. Um, And she sort of shifted her campaign message to be the person who could knit together the progressive wing and somehow bridge to the centrists and be that person who could bring everyone together.
1: I am a capitalist. I don't want to dismantle capitalism. I just want to make it work better, that kind of thing.
2: Once upon a time, I was even a Republican.
1: So given what you've just described, and by the way, your description of the way people were thinking about her midway through 2019 very much reflects how I was thinking about her. Do you think that she is going to be able to survive not just that flawed DNA test rollout, not just her struggles with health care, and not just that exchange over alleged uh, sexism on the part of Bernie Sanders that seems to have not worked well for her? Is she going to be able to survive those three inflection points and use her moderated pitch that you're describing plus the ground game that her campaign manager Roger Lau said was going to Uh, help her win the nomination, because it's so strong. Do you still see her as someone who could become the nominee?
2: I see her as someone who could become the nominee.
0: Peter Kansas, what do you think? Well, yeah, I think until Super Tuesday, we'd all be crazy if we dismissed anyone in the top four or five. Um, Things are just too volatile. Uh, I see Warren's candidacy a little differently, not not wildly so. I'm looking for a broader trend. And I'm wondering the degree to which the Democratic electorate wants a realignment, and by that I mean, you know, away from Obamaism just because its time has passed, away from Clintonism because its time, too, has passed. Um, I'm using a pretty fuzzy phrase there when I say Clintonism, but um, we have this real tension between the center and the left among broad-based Democrats. And I'm sort of looking at New Hampshire to see what's the Bernie Sanders vote plus the Elizabeth Warren vote equal. And that'll just give me a guidepost of sorts for the coming rounds of caucuses and primaries in Nevada, in South Carolina, and then for Super Tuesday. I I, want to see how this— How real is this swing to the left? I'm at the point now with the primaries that I'm trying to see what can I learn from them rather than what can I tell people about. By the way, I'm not giving up my job as a know-it-all. But I think until Super Tuesday, this is a time to watch what the voters are actually saying and then literally add the numbers up.
2: Well, I think that's why Iowa, the uh, implosion of Iowa, is such a disappointment because— It was the first opportunity people thought they had to learn something from the voters. And at the moment, we've been uh, somewhat robbed of that. Um, And I mean, I agree with you. I think this cycle, especially everyone, even the know-it-all pundits, are looking to learn from the voters as to where things stand with the party. Um, But I think one thing, you know, to me seems pretty clear. The Democratic Party does not want Bernie Sanders to be the nominee. And I think that will, will fuel um, a, a lot of the energy, and will will set some of what happens in New Hampshire and beyond. Personally, I'm not sure they can stop him. I don't but, think anyone can. If, if there's a if that progressive left and that energy is there, and they go, you know, surround Bernie Sanders with love and votes, <clears throat> I don't think they can stop him any more than the Republicans were able to stop Trump.
0: Well, that's the key. See, Sanders almost did to the democrats what trump did do to the republicans and i see him as very much an insurgent first of all he's not a democrat <laughs> neither was trump a republican he's as a senator he's got very little <laughs> that he can point to in terms of accomplishments But nevertheless i admired his radical message if you will um, bernie was and is a sort of revolutionary figure. And he does appeal to many, many rank-and-file Democrats. Listen, he doesn't appeal to me um, as as much as I'm fascinated by him. I I mean, he, in many ways, is a left-wing Trump. You know, I, I don't think He's a bad—I do believe that Donald Trump is a bad person, an evil person. I I don't think Bernie Sanders is a bad person, an evil person. You know, he's your crazy uncle, and he's the crazy uncle who just might be elected president. You know, I just say put Larry David in rather than Bernie Sanders.
1: What do you guys make of the report from NBC News that John Kerry was overheard saying uh, that— Sanders, he was afraid, was going to take the entire Democratic Party down with him and allegedly was pondering making his own run for president to stop Bernie. Uh, Senator Kerry has come out and vigorously denied that he was entertaining a presidential bid of his own. He says he's all in for Joe Biden. He didn't, as far as I know, deny the idea that he has grave concerns about Bernie
2: Sanders. Uh you, I, bel- I believe the report from NBC News. Yeah, me too. It, me it, too. It's, it's in keeping with the John Kerry character. You could just see him sitting there on his phone in the middle of the hotel lobby in, in Des Moines or something like that, um, thinking out loud.
1: And it's in keeping with uh, what Hillary Clinton, another establishment Democrat par excellence, recently had to say about Sanders, about how no one likes him and he hasn't gotten anything done. Uh, so if he is not the nominee one question that raises for me, and obviously we've got a long way to go until we learn if he will be, but one question that raises for me is whether if Sanders doesn't land the nomination and someone else does, uh, Elizabeth Warren, you name it, alternate candidate, whoever he or she may be, whether the Sanders faithful then sit it out and feel like once again, the knives were out for their candidate and the establishment wouldn't let him win what he had coming to.
2: Well, we started out with you asking me something along the lines of, did I think Elizabeth Warren could still be the nominee? And I said yes, and that's because... I am thinking that some of the progressives in the Bernie wing would accept her. Some, not all. Um, and I can't see them accepting another Democrat that's running right now. So that's why I see her as a possible bridge between the two wings of the party. But who knows?
1: I know we're just spitballing here, but how many of the Sanders faithful do you think would, would accept her? I'm talking half, two thirds, three quarters?
2: I don't know. Not the Bernie bros. Not the hardcore Bernie bros. Not the Um, ones
1: who were posting the snake emojis.
2: Not the ones who turned their backs to Hillary Clinton in 2016 in Philadelphia.
1: By the way, I was in the room when that happened, and it is one of the things in my... Increasingly lengthy journalistic career that I am sure I'll remember if I'm lucky enough to make it to eighty. Susan Sarandon and Danny Glover and all the other Sanders people walking into the media filing center and basically occupying it. It was really something to behold.
2: Same here.
0: Danny Glover, Susan Sarandon, political powerhouses if ever there were any.
2: But uh, well, they hurt Hillary. No, they no, didn't. no. I
0: right. know. I know. I'm. I'm. I, maybe I'm just sort of shell-shocked early in this presidential race, in in just the the insane and absurd way in which the allegedly most powerful nation on the face of the earth goes about choosing its fearless leader. I mean—
2: A part of this, though, is—I mean, we talked about Trump and what happened in 2016, where he now has— basically taken over the Republican Party. The the Republican Party of old no longer exists. And it could be that there's going to be an implosion from the left as well, and that somebody takes it over like a Bernie Sanders, and that people are just so, sort of tired of the same old, same old, and the hypocrisy of it all, that that it has to be rebuilt from the ground up. I mean, that may happen on the Democratic side.
0: And and there's also the potential for, you know, six months of struggle here.
2: Don't you kind of have the feeling that we're sort of at a pivot point right now in maybe in in political journalism even where people of a certain generation cling to this very romantic notion of – what happens in Iowa and and the cornfields and, and, you know, as being this little, um, you know, bubble of democracy. And then the
1: bridges of Madison County. right, Right.
2: And then you move to New Hampshire. But the world is a different place right now. And I just think that a small sector of the population relates to that. And it happens to be all the people that cover politics a certain way and the political Consulting crowd from a different era. I think we we may be moving to a, a different time and yeah, place. Yeah, I,
0: I would like to say though, I, I I always thought Iowa mattered, and I always thought New Hampshire mattered, but for different reasons. The Obama campaign taught me something very important. The Obama campaign focused on delegates. They won in Iowa, and they wanted the delegates. They focused on delegates throughout the whole race. And as we know, the way the rules are drawn in each state, delegates are apportioned in different ways. It's about the delegates.
1: That being said, though, to Joan's point, we are in this moment where the attentiveness to representation and the political implications of representation is more acute, I would say, in the Democratic Party than than I can remember seeing it. Thinking of Ayanna Pressley's campaign against Mike Capuano, for example, where she kept repeating representation matters. And I, I do have the sense that a big chunk of the Democratic base, but also the political media is increasingly attuned to something that we've known in theory for a while, which is how much Iowa and New Hampshire don't look like the rest of the country when it comes to... You're shaking your head, but no, I no.
0: think it's a real... Iowa, no, no, I don't dis. Iowa does not resemble America. New Hampshire doesn't resemble America. Iowa represents 41 delegates, period. Ayanna Presley's argument about representation mattering was tailor-made to a dist- a congressional district that's very into identity. Um, the marketplace—and by this I mean the political marketplace—determines the message. Um, I, I, Bloomberg, who I, until the last couple of days, had not taken seriously, and the reason I hadn't taken him in his candidacy seriously, is because I doubted— that someone could make real headway with essentially TV, radio, by advertising alone. Um, Then I saw a bunch of his 30-second commercials on YouTube and was blown away by how convincing they were. You know, after the third one I saw, I'm thinking, wow, this is making an impact on me, a skeptic. What's it doing to people who are honestly neutral? Um, He's registering in the polls.
1: Yeah, he's making a real splash.
0: Yeah, and, and, you know, all sorts of norms are being broken here. He's banking on Super Tuesday. Here we are on the eve of New Hampshire, where he's not in the contest. And I'm just wondering, you know, is his cash-rich, advertising-based strategy going to pay off? Don't
2: I don't know. Yeah, I don't know the answer to that question either. But, I I mean, people get their information in different ways now. Now, if he's advertising on TV, that's going to just, you know, be directed at a certain demographic, older people, not young people. But he can, if he can move public opinion through advertising versus going from cornfield to cornfield in Iowa— Well, won't the delegates follow? I don't
0: know. We'll see. And by the way, I think it was in the last Scrum where I floated the idea that this will be an election that is going to pit television advertising against the Internet audience. These Bloomberg YouTube ads made me think, well, who's got enough money on his own to paper over those differences, to appeal to pay for TV ads and to buy the Internet Bloomberg.
1: Well, and Joan, I was chatting recently... A real billionaire. Yeah, yeah, with your old colleague, Joanna Weiss, before a taping and Beat the Press, and she said that her son, who is not old enough to vote, had, you know come downstairs or something and said to Joanna and her husband, hey, I really like that Mike Bloomberg. And he'd seen his ads because he was watching YouTube. Peter, you said a real billionaire, right, a moment ago? Oh, you caught that. that is it's one. always
0: nice to know that the
1: host That's is paying one of, of, course, one
0: of, Bloom- of That's
2: one of Bloomberg's lines. Oh, is it really? I yeah, didn't... it is. One and
1: of... <laughs> that is one of the things that I find most fascinating. If you allow yourself to imagine Bloomberg becoming the nominee, I feel like because of his resume, including having more money than God and <laughs> being the former mayor in New York, like he might be the candidate most well-situated to get under Donald Trump's skin. Well,
2: he already has. He already yeah. has, yeah. yes. Right, even yes. that. I did force myself to watch that um, interview that the president had with Sean Hannity. Oh, um, good and, for you. Oh, God bless you. Bless you. Wow. Not, in re- wow. not in real time, but I went back and watched <laughs> the interview in quotes Where he uh, went out of his way to insult Bloomberg and call him short and assert, apparently falsely, what else is new, that Bloomberg wanted a box for the debate to stand on. Oh,
1: right, right. Now, was it before or after (laughs) that that the Bloomberg spokesman came out and mocked Trump's obesity and spray tan? I think think. it was after that. Okay, yeah. And I mean, yeah, yeah. I feel like there you see in miniature what we could watch if if they were the two nominees.
0: You know, let me play Disruptor here for a second. I think the real news out of Iowa, the disgrace of the meltdown, which is a disgrace that should be borne by the Democratic Party, not just the Iowans, but I think the real news um, has to do with Trump, and that's that Team Trump or the Trump campaign um, had an extremely vigorous presence at the Republican caucuses. Um, because you know there there are two challenges, one of whom is Bill Welt Joe two, walsh it, right. Joe Walsh in in Bill Welt. Um, they had, Most of—they had the Trump kids. They had the White House chief of staff. They had the White House counsel. I'm just skimming the top. By the
1: way, I had not known any of this until you shared it with me a couple hours ago.
0: Uh, No, and and they are fighting hard already to rally their base. They are taking nothing for granted. They have a very aggressive um, counter-schedule planned for New Hampshire— you know, a big rally, a big honking rally the night before the Democrats vote, um, a party the night of the uh, the primary. The Trump counterattack is taking place right now. So it doesn't sound like you're foreseeing a great big Bill Weld
1: surge in New York. <laughs> no,
0: no. When I feel bad for Weld, first of all, Trump's strength is what's killed Weld. Um, Also, his flirtation, his romance with the Libertarians has cost him credibility with serious Republicans. Um, And and I know this from talking to people in New Hampshire who are friends or acquaintances and are serious Republicans, most of whom have remained never Trumpers. And they're sort of bummed that— that Weld is the only one that emerged because while they personally like him, they don't take him seriously as a Republican. And
2: that, you know, that is too bad. I mean, what I think what's killed Bill Weld is he's always lacked kind of the fire in the belly. Um, He never wants to look like he really cares. Um, You know, you you want to believe in him, but he 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 just everything is kind of a joke. And when you interview him, he's. I said the other day it's like opening a closet filled with Brooks Brothers suits and like mods fly out. I mean, he he just is such a link to a past and he just really won't get in the fight.
1: I'm fascinated to hear you say that because I did not cover him in Massachusetts when he was governor. I wasn't doing this kind of work yet. And when I interviewed him, we I, I talked to him at the Boston Public Library at our studio there and it was so weird. I would ask him a question about his candidacy, and he would give me sort of a brief answer, tied up with a bow, and then just stop talking and smile. And I thought, "Oh, what's right, you going want, on? Right, yeah, you don't you want to get into the don't fight? Don't you want to make right. your case? Make- You're running for president. Here's a pl- you know, granted, it's just Adam Riley at the Boston Public Library, but this is a chance for you to make your pitch. Why are why do why am I fighting to play? It was like talking to you know, my kid, when she doesn't want to tell me how her day at school was or something, try pull it out, please, just give me something to work with. So to hear that he was always that way is really
2: interesting. Well, he was always that way, and he was that way when I interviewed him, as you did in the course of this candidacy and when he met with the Globe Ed Board. Um, just kind of doesn't take himself seriously enough so that it's hard to see how we could make others take him seriously. But I think what you said about Trump and his, you know, lack of a Rose Garden strategy, um, you know, is interesting. I mean, he is—he like—he loves to fight. He loves rallies. He'd rather be up there in Manchester or wherever than than um, in the White House anyway. And he quickly turned Iowa against the Democrats, and I think he did it really smartly. I mean, he basically said they, they can't run an election, You want, and they want to run the government. And he also sort of raised—sort of undercut the credibility of whatever the results might be and sort of make a joke out of they said the Russians were hijacking or interfering with the election. Look at this. I can't get an app right. So, I mean, he knows how, he certainly knows how to um, turn things against his opponents. All
1: right. Closing question for you two. Given the great big mess in Iowa, does New Hampshire matter even more now than it would have otherwise? I see you nodding your head, Joan.
2: I think Yes, I think yes. There's no real clear winner out of Iowa. When they finally do announce results, um, everyone can kind of question them, just because really the credibility yeah. has been undercut. Um, and the there biggest will be.
1: imaginable asterisk is on them, right?
2: Right. Everyone is a winner. Um, so what happens in New Hampshire is really important. It kind of gives everybody a reset: Biden, Klobuchar, Warren, and Sanders, and Mayor Pete.
0: Yeah, I mean n- New Hampshire. That. They are living free up there. They're not dying. They are first in the nation once again. You know, trot out all the old clichés. Um, yeah, New Hampshire will matter more, but it it matters as a staging ground for what's to come. South Carolina in Nevada, which are kind of outliers, but th- they're important outliers. And then there's Super Tuesday. I mean, Super Tuesday is incredibly important. California and Texas, you know, giant states. Also Massachusetts. He nodded that all to discount Massachusetts. You know, what happens if Elizabeth Warren doesn't win Massachusetts?
2: Right. I, we, I was just going to say we haven't mentioned Deval Patrick.
0: I am glad that you rectified that. <laughs> but yeah, that do you, do you,
1: that you imagine could, him making a splash? I little don't know. He could, he could play him. a
2: role. He could take some points away from Warren in New Hampshire, and who knows what's going to happen in Massachusetts.
1: Good point. Joan Venaki, thank you, as always, for coming in and talking with me and Peter.
2: Nice to be here.
0: Well, that's it for this week's installment. Special thanks to Joan Venaki. Our engineer this week was Dave Goodman. Our producer, as usual, Zoe Matthews. Adam and I will be in New Hampshire for the next several days, covering the Democratic and Republican primaries. Yes, there is a Republican primary as well. Thanks for listening. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News.